Um, what's up, guys? Man, I am I'm happy to be here. It is surreal to be back, and uh, yeah, man, we're going to get after it this morning. Like John said, 4th of July um, is coming up, and that's exciting. And, you know, as we think about holidays, a lot of times for us, holidays are a time of either reflection or maybe celebration, um, or maybe even times where we can kind of look back and, and learn something about history, learn something about ourselves by looking at history. And I think that that's pretty fitting for today um, because I'm excited to talk to you guys about another very important thing in history. Um, our text today in Acts is actually, in my opinion, one of the most historically important events in the history and the foundation of the church. Um, without it, our church could look very, very different. Uh, and so up to this point in this series in Acts, the church has began to go from Jerusalem out into the ends of the earth. And so it's awesome because these Gentiles are now being added into the fold. It's not just Jews, but it's also Gentiles. And so while that is awesome, that actually presents a little, a little bit of a problem for the early church. The early church is starting to have some conflict between Jews and Gentiles and the integration of them into one body, into one faith. Um, and so if you've been here during this sermon series, you've probably seen this happen a few times already. But today in Acts 15, which is what we're going to be in, is really, uh, uh, in my opinion, the pinnacle and the high point of this. But it's also where, in my opinion, the, the, the most prominent problem is going to be put the rest once and for all. And so we're going to be talking a lot about just the gospel. There's going to be a ton of scripture reference, so if you're a note taker, you know, prepare yourself, I suppose. Um, but why don't we pray first, and then, and then we'll get into our text. Um, yeah, God, you are so good to us. Um, you are who we don't deserve, and Lord, I just pray that you would be king over this time. Um, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would fill us all with the ears to listen to your words, um, that you would take away any distractions, that you would take away anything that's not, or that's said that is not of you, um, God. And, and ultimately, let us leave this place loving you more, celebrating your gospel more, um, and, and making a difference in your kingdom. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 1, and here it is. Some men came down from Judea, which came down to Antioch, and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all of the brothers and sisters. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So let's stop there for a second. Just a quick recap, right? Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch. They've really been all over the place doing their church planner missionary thing. And then they're approached by these people who come 300 miles from Judea to Antioch. And they're people who want to tell the Gentiles in the church that in order to be saved, you actually have to follow the law of Moses. You have to become circumcised and then continue to follow the law in order to be saved. 
And Paul and Barnabas don't take very kindly to this, and I would say rightly so, right? They've been going around preaching this faith that is based on putting your faith in Jesus and being saved, being saved apart from the law. And so the scripture says that they engage them in serious argument and debate. Um, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in the middle of a Paul and Barnabas getting after it there. Uh, but I find this noteworthy that even they engage them in such debate because the Bible talks a lot about peace within the body, right? Peace and unity, don't engage in, in silly debates or arguments. And so even from that, I think we can tell that this is, this is no silly debate, right? This is a serious issue that we're dealing with. These people are here trying, trying to test them with what is salvation. And so Paul and Barnabas oppose this idea. And then after some debate, the decision is made that, that we don't want to decide here. We're going to go back down to Jerusalem and ask the elders and the apostles there. And so we'll pick back up here in verse 6 on, on what happens. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through faith, uh, through, through the grace of the Lord in the same way that they are. All right, so here's Peter's conclusion, and that's pretty plain and simple, right? Saved through grace, saved by faith, um, but we're going to dig into this a little bit. And so first, Peter makes an appeal based off of his experience. He references himself in this argument, and we can suppose that he's probably referencing Acts 10. I think you guys actually went over Acts 10 a little bit earlier in the series, where Peter sees Cornelius and other Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, get saved in the middle of his gospel message. And the key thing here, the important thing to note of what happened there is that they didn't have to be purified, they didn't have to be circumcised, they didn't follow the law of Moses, they weren't even baptized before the Holy Spirit fell on them and they were saved just by faith in the gospel. And here in verse 9 he carries on and says that God made no distinction between us and them cleansing their hearts by faith. And I really love this verse. I think there's a lot that we can maybe take away from this verse. First, it conveys the obvious truth that God is not just a God for the Jews. God is not just a God for, for men or for women or for a certain race or ethnicity. God is a God of everybody. He makes no distinction amongst those things. Right? We see in Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek or male or female. We are all one in Christ and that doesn't mean that there is no literal Jew, no literal Greek. That doesn't mean that there is not literally man and woman, but that those are not the things that God distinguishes through when it comes to salvation. So while that's true in the same vein, this verse also is saying a really important thing, that the one distinguishing factor between those who are saved and those who are not saved is faith. Right? That's the one distinguishing factor. The only thing that separates those who are not saved and those who are saved is faith. He cleansed their hearts by faith. And so in part, what that means is if you have your faith in Jesus, like you're in, right? There's no, there's no law, there, there's no extra stuff here. But what that also means, and, and something that I feel like just kind of came on my heart when I was considering this, is if the only distinguishing factor is faith, 
then that means that there is no sin that can separate you from the grace of God. Right? That there is no, my sin is too bad, my thoughts are too evil to separate you from the grace of God. It is simply God's grace given to you through faith. And so we all know that we have done horrible things, evil things in the sight of God, but God only distinguishes by faith. And so based on Peter's experience alone, I think he makes a pretty strong argument, but we're going to continue because maybe some of the Pharisees would like to question the legitimacy of the Gentiles' faith, or they would like to question Peter's experience. And so in verse 10, Peter appeals to history. Specifically, he appeals to Israel's history. And now, if you want to get the attention of the Pharisees, start talking about Moses and Abraham and stuff, and now they got your attention. And so that's what he does. He says in verse 10, Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? So let's break this down in greater detail. Um, If I'm a Pharisee, I have a few questions when it comes to this, right? Like, I want to know, Peter, you're declaring that salvation is by faith, but, but where is this in the scriptures? I'm a Pharisee. I love the scriptures. So where is this in the scripture? But also, like, has this always been the case? Has, has it always been like this, or is this just a new covenant thing? I want to make sure that God is consistent in this. And so to do this, I think we're going to go through the script. We're going to be able to go through the scriptures and find out that God has for all time given salvation through faith. The first point here is actually that the only way to achieve righteousness through works of the law is by following the law completely and perfectly. You know, there actually is a way to achieve righteousness through works of the law, but it's not how most people would think it. It's not just by generally being a good person. It's not by doing more good than bad. Romans 10 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, since Moses writes this about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. Um, And that last part here is really a reference to Leviticus 18.5, which it's very similar, but just for clarification, it says, Keep my statutes and ordinances, and a person will live if he does them. And so if a person could receive righteousness or be considered righteous from the law, we know how. It's by keeping the law blamelessly, perfectly, and completely. But of course, we all know that neither, none of us have done that. We all know that we have all broken the law. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And on this note, there, there's a man named Ray Comfort. Um, he's, he's, I, mean, I don't think he's a YouTuber, but he's on YouTube. Um, but he's a guy that I like, and, and he's an evangelist who goes around in parts of California, and his evangelism strategy I, I really like a lot. What he'll do is he'll go up to people, and he'll typically say, oh, hey, man, like, what's your name? Get to know him. Do you think you're a good person? Do you think that you could, you could like, get to heaven because you're a good person? And nine out of ten people will say, yeah, like, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm, I'm generally a good person. And so what Ray does is he walks through just a few of the Ten Commandments with them. First he'll go, oh, like, have you ever uh, said the Lord's name in vain? And the person will say, yeah, yeah, I think, think once or twice, okay. Have you ever stolen something? Yeah, I've, I've stolen something. They'll respond and say, okay, well, have you ever committed adultery? And they say, well, no, I haven't done that. I got you. And then he'll say, okay, well, Jesus said that if you look on a man or woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with them, and so therefore you've committed adultery. Have you ever murdered someone? No, I've never murdered anybody. I'm a good person. 
Well, Jesus said that if you ever hated somebody, that you've murdered them in your heart. Have you ever hated somebody? And they go, yeah, I have hated somebody. And so in the end, Ray kind of gets him in a gotcha situation where he goes, okay, well, what we know is you're a, a blasphemer, a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And so I would not consider that a very good person. And we've only been through four of the commandments. And so um, I, I say this because Honestly, I think that he would have got under the skin of the Pharisees pretty well. Like, he would have been able to walk through the commandments because the Pharisees, the people who were a part of the party, the Pharisees, they considered themselves very good law followers. And I'm sure they were. They were good at following the law, but they weren't perfect. And that's what Jesus continued to preach to them, that that while you may do some things even better than others, you're not perfect in following the law. And if you don't follow the law perfectly, then you are disqualified from righteousness by works. And so therefore, we are not only not righteous by way of the law, but we are actually under a curse for not upholding the law. Galatians 3.10 says this, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. And so in the same way that whoever does everything written in the law will live Whoever doesn't do the things written in the law, whoever is disqualified from righteousness by faith is subject to a curse, and that curse is death. And ultimately, this is why we need saving, right? We're guilty of death, and the law, through breaking it, brought us the penalty of death. Galatians 3.21 says this, Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would surely be on the basis of the law. And so what this is saying is, if if the law could bring you back to life, if it could save you from the curse of death, then sure, you could do that. But there is no life-giving power in the law. All it does is reveal us our sin and reveal to us that we are under its curse. There is no doing more good than bad in order to get yourself out of the hole of death and out of the curse of the law. And so in this, we we have ourselves a little problem, right? We are under the curse of the law. We are guilty of death through breaking the law. But of course, there's good news. And this good news is is what Peter and the apostles are, are trying to share with this group. The good news is that though we were under the curse of death through the law, Jesus became a curse on our behalf. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so it says he, he became a curse there because Jesus actually did fully fulfill the law perfectly and blamelessly. And so he was not under the curse. But in order to save us from the curse of death, the Bible says he became that curse for us. He, he took our place. That's what it was when Jesus died on the cross, is, is in a way taking the place that we deserve for death. And so it wasn't enough for Jesus just to die for us because, as we know, we're still dead to sin, right? We still have this problem, and even if the sin is taken away, we're still dead, right? And when Jesus is killed, Jesus is still dead, and there's no happy ending to that. And so that's why the resurrection is essential to the gospel. Jesus had to be brought back to life so that he could bring us back to life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this, 
but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. Man, you are saved by grace. And so since we were dead in our sin, it had to happen that Jesus would resurrect. And therefore, if we are in Christ, we can too resurrect in Christ and not only be freed from the curse of death, but be brought back to life. And so finally here, the conclusion that, we're, that we've been searching for is this, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can have righteousness, the righteousness of God given to us by grace. And so Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says this. We're going to reread 13 and then go into 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written, cursed is everyone who has hung on a tree. The purpose was that, that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. And that promised spirit is Jeremiah 31. And so God made this promise to Abraham that through Israel, all the nations would be blessed. And through Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, all people can be saved from their sin and given new life through faith, apart from the law. And so when we think back to, to one of the two questions that I posed earlier, one of them was, has this been the case for all time? Maybe we see some scripture evidence for that being the case now, but what about for all time? Romans 4 answers that question pretty well. The Pharisees, they loved themselves some Abraham. This is what Romans 4 says about Abraham. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? That Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then we look forward in verse 9. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? We're really getting right at the issue. For we say that faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In, in what way then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Was it before or after? Is it not while he, uh, is it not while he was circumcised but uncircumcised? And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. So I know a lot of talk about circumcision, I'm sorry. But the point here is that Abraham, before he had done any work, before he had done anything, not even the, the promise of circumcision, before all of that, he was credited as righteous before God. And it points to that this has always been the way. One other example in Romans 4 is of David, who doesn't love himself, some David. Romans 4 says this, Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person whom God credits righteousness apart from the works of God. He speaks of this, a quote from Psalms 32, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. And in Psalm 32, most people agree that, that this was written after David had already repented for the murder and adultery that he did with Bathsheba and Uriah in that situation. And the interesting thing about this is the fact that, that within the law even, there are sacrifices for some things that, for which you could be uh, forgiven for, but, but there was no sacrifice for, death, or for, for murder and adultery. Murder and adultery were a capital punishment. 
David was worthy of death even according to the Old Testament law. He should have been put to death. But here he says that God forgave him for it. And so even in the Old Testament, we see the trace here, the line of God forgiving through faith, even when we don't deserve it. Later in that psalm, David says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so that's what God does. When we repent of our sin, when we turn to Jesus, we understand and recognize that his sacrifice, his death and resurrection was for our sin and for our life, then God forgives us. He wipes the slate clean, no matter how horrible or bad it is. And so, of course, the Bible has many more examples of this. We won't go into that, uh, but just to be clear, for all time, before and after Jesus, people were saved by faith. This is, this is nothing new for the apostles, and of course, this is nothing new for us. And so when we return to the original statement that started this all here in verse 10, Peter and James, they affirm, they affirm a couple things. First, that we're saved apart from the law, right? So the Pharisees, you have no right to tell the Gentiles that they have to follow the law in order to be saved. You have no right to do that because we're saved apart from the law. And secondly, that when we are saved through faith in Jesus, we are actually saved out of slavery to the law. And we're born into a new covenant. And so, which is why this conclusion is that we should not burden the Gentiles with it. We we shouldn't burden the Gentiles with following the law because they're saved out of slavery to it. They're no longer bound to it. Um, And I can already hear the Pharisees objecting and getting upset and saying, well, does that mean that we just throw out the Old Testament? We throw out the law and we we, uh, ignore it now. And, And to be honest... We do that sometimes. I will even admit, me as the main culprit, I would like to just camp out in the New Testament and study that and enjoy that a lot more. Maybe it's easier. Maybe you have your own reason. Um, but it was on my heart, and, and again, through looking through this, that the Old Testament is God's word. The law is God's word, and it's good um, for us still today. And so quickly, I just want to run through a few reasons, a few things that we can kind of glean from the Old Testament. And so to, to lay the groundwork for this, at first I look at Galatians 3.24. It says, The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. And I'm keying in on that word guardian. What that word guardian can also mean is tutor. And when we look at the Greek term, I, I, don't, I don't say Greek words, so it's up there, but I, I can't pronounce it. I don't try to do that. What that word is actually referring to contextually is a faithful and trustworthy servant of a household who would train the boys of the house. Right, so one source says this, that the boys were not so much as allowed to step out of the house without having this guardian before arriving at the age of manhood. And so they, the guardian lived with them and it, it walked with them and, and taught them morality and, and how to be a, a man and things of that source. And so when we look at the Old Testament, through the lens of being a guardian and a tutor, that's what we're going to see as it, as it walks along us, and it, and it really is helpful to us, and it was helpful to them. So the first one of the purposes of the law is to reveal to us our sin. We've already gone over this a little bit, right? The law reveals that we are sinful. Galatians 3.19 says, Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. 
We also see in Romans 7 that Paul has this inner dialogue with himself. And he says, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law told me not to covet. And then when the law told me not to covet, I realized that I covet a lot. And so in that, the law revealed to me my sin. And it can do that for us today, not even just before we're revealed of our sin and come to Christ, but even after, man, the law still reveals to me my sin and reveals to me that I am always in need of the gospel. I'm never going to grow out, grow out of my need for grace. And so next is that the law, as a tutor, reveals to us the cost of sin. And it does this in multiple ways. But this is often neglected, I think. The law teaches that sin is deserving of death. And if you look in, in the nitty-gritty Exodus and Leviticus, you see continually that God says that the result of sin is death. Like, blood needs to be shed for sin. That is the result. That is how it is. And we see this continually. This instills from the beginning this truth that the wages of sin is death and it calls us to take the justice of God seriously. God is not to be trifled with, and we are not to test his justice because God is just. And just as he is loving, God is just to punish sin rightfully, as I assume we would hope that he would do. We don't want a God that just lets sin go. But also, just as the law reveals God's justice, it also reveals to us God's goodness. I would argue it, it maybe even reveals more of God's goodness than God's justice, because in the same way that we see the rightful punishment for sin being necessitated, we see God making a way for us to be forgiven of sin. In the law, we see the roots of this idea of, of substitutionary atonement, that, that we can sacrifice a lamb for sin instead of us receiving what we deserve. And that that pleases God to be able to, 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 to spare us and, and to replace something that is not made in his image for our sin. But we also see the fact that God is good in his mercy and in his grace. How, If you've read the Old Testament, you understand that time and time and time and time again, Israel turns away from God, worships other gods, and then they realize what they've done. And then they come back and they repent. And God allows them to repent and he, and he saves them from what the, the, the trouble that they've got themselves into. And then they go back and they do it again. And this is a vicious cycle that is over and over again. But the thing that remains constant is God's grace and goodness to his people. That he always receives them back. And so through the law reveals to us God's goodness and love. And then finally, most importantly in my opinion, the law reveals to us the person and the work of Jesus. And if I could pick only one reason to saturate yourself, not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament, all of the Bible, it's this. Honestly, one of even just the coolest parts of the Bible is that you see Jesus throughout the entire fabric of it. This is what John 1, 29 says, and in I, I sat on this verse for a long time this week. I, I, found, I find this very significant. John 1, 29, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Man, how cool is that? Like, just like so early on in the journey that the Holy Spirit, through John the Baptist, recognizes Jesus as the sacrificial Lamb of the Old Covenant, the one who would take away the sins of the world. 
prophesied throughout all of the Bible. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb through whom all people can be saved for sin. Jesus is the seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head prophesied in Genesis 3. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the, prophet, the one prophesied to bless the nations in Genesis. And Jesus is not only the star of the New Testament, but he's the star of the Old Testament, of the entire Bible. And so my hope is that even though I understand it can be, it can be tough to work through this, it may not always feel as even rewarding or, or, or dense theologically. Like the Old Testament is good and the law is good to still work in us a, a work of the Spirit. And so, although that might be a good place to stop, our story in Acts 15 is not complete, so we have a little bit to go still. Um, looking back on the passage, Peter, Paul, and James, they make their case, right, salvation through faith, not of works of the law. And then it comes time for them to send a message back to these churches, right? These churches, the last thing they heard is Paul and Barnabas got in a yelling match with these people who used to be Pharisees, and then they went somewhere, and we don't know what to do with it now. And so they send a letter back to the churches in order to inform them of the decision that was made. And it says this, From the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles, in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since you have heard that some without our authorization went from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men uh, and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, for who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, we sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. And so this is, this is the results. These are the findings. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours, which is so cool, man, right? Like being on the same page with the Spirit. That's awesome. Um, it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burden on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourself from these things. Um, and so honestly, maybe this decision is a little weird to you. It's like, okay, they just said, like, you don't have to keep the law, but also, like, here are some law to follow, I guess, is what it may seem like. Um, and, and the decision came for, for these four things, right? Abstain from food offered to idols, eating blood, eating anything strangled, and then abstain from sexual immorality. And I will admit, there is some debate on whether these four um, are specifically just for these churches or whether they are for all people for all time. One thing that is clear, sexual immorality not for all people for all time, right? The New Testament attests to that over and over. So that one we really don't have to worry about. But the other three that focus more on food and things that, are, that have been sacrificed and blood and all those things, um, it's, I would say it's not the most clear, but also 99 people out of 100 already don't do these things. So that is not what I'm going to focus on. Um, what I'm going to actually focus on is what I think the heart behind this is. The heart behind their requirements for the churches. I think it gets behind the nature of the new covenant, right? We're separated or taken out of slavery to the law of the old covenant, put, in, put into a new covenant. And the reason I, I'd say that is because this council is primarily discussing whether or not we need to obey the Mosaic law. And so if the takeaway is we, we don't need to, to be saved, what I think is actually going on here is getting at the idea 
of, of what the new covenant is all about. Even think about it in terms of, of, of these churches, right? They, they have a lot going on. As I said, there was a lot of controversy, a lot, a lot of pinning these two Jews and Gentile parties against one another. And so though you're separate, they are separated from the law, the result is that they have Jews and Gentiles, Jews who still may want to follow the law, which is perfectly okay, doesn't save them, but it doesn't inherently hurt them. So they may want to only eat certain things, only do certain things. And then we have Gentiles who may not want to do that. But these two groups are in the same family. They're, they're eating together. They're spending time together. They're worshiping together and living together. And so what I think these requirements are getting at is the request to love your brothers and sisters, to not offend your brothers and sisters, to care for them, and be willing to sacrifice for them. And like I said, ultimately, th- this is what the new covenant really is about. This is what we're bound to in the new covenant. We think about the greatest commandment, right? In Matthew, Matthew 22, what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, my heart, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. How do we fulfill that in the new covenant? In Romans 6, 7 says this, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So this is what it means to be brought into the new covenant, to serve in the newness of the spirit. It means we are no longer slaves to the letter of the law, slaves to just do exactly what the law says and really not care about the motive or care about who it affects, but rather we are led by the spirit. We're given the spirit upon our rebirth and now we are led by the spirit in this new covenant. And so when we think about what it means to be led by the Spirit, there's obviously a lot to be said about that. But I think about Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It says the law is not against such things. And so it's important to recognize that the law and the Spirit are not at odds, but they're actually intertwined. They actually will never contradict one another. And so that's why we always say when you feel like the Spirit may be putting something on your heart, take it back to Scripture because they're never going to contradict each other. Living in the new covenant means that we're led by the Spirit now. And man, how awesome is that? Like how awesome to talk about Jeremiah 31 that God put his Spirit in our hearts so that we actually can be led. We, 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 only, we don't only have to just listen to what people are told us, but when we listen to the Spirit now, and we can receive that from other people as well. And so what this means for these churches is that if your brother or sister are going to be offended by you eating this food, if they're going to be offended uh, by, by you doing this one thing, then like it's wrong for you. You should abstain from that thing if it's going to offend your brother and sister. Because the, to be led by the Spirit produces a love for God and his people. And so as, as we close here, I just want to make clear to you guys that as if we focus our hearts and desires on listening to the Spirit daily, to seeking the Spirit's will for our life, not, not just overall, not just in the grand scheme, but, but day in, day out, how can I love God? How can I love others and seek the Spirit? Like it will probably bring you to the Word, and those two will really make a difference in your life, and it's going to make a difference in our church. And so the worship team can come up because the last uh, passage that I want to share with you guys 
is, is in Acts 15, 30, 31. This is after uh, the churches go off, and it says, So they sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathered the assembly, and they delivered the letter. And in verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And so as we're going to get an opportunity to worship and rejoice and to praise God, there's much to praise God for, but specifically today, I want you guys, as you worship and as you leave, man, praise God for the gospel. If you sit here in church every week, my, my, my maybe strongest prayer for you is that you don't grow numb to hearing the gospel and to rejoicing in the gospel. And so rejoice in that with us today. Rejoice in that as you leave and then rejoice in the spirit that God has given us. And so through that, we can love God and love one another and uphold the new covenant until Christ returns. So pray with me if you would. Yeah, God, um, Lord, we, we rejoice and we praise you. Um, you've given us everything that we don't deserve. God, you sustain our every breath when we don't deserve it. You have saved us when we don't deserve it. You continue to shower us in gifts when we don't deserve it. So God, give us thankful hearts. God, give, it, give us an excitement to be living for a king who is good. Living for a king who didn't require anything of us, who, who knew that we could not save ourselves, yet saved us. Man, what a good king that is. And help us see that today. Help us never grow weary of knowing that and enjoying your goodness. And Holy Spirit, please help us as we leave this place to be led by you, both in our worship of the King, but also in our, in our fellowship with one another, in the way that we serve one another, in the way that we sacrifice for one another. God, help us do that amidst of the toughest trials and hardest things that we may go through. Lord, we trust you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.